This is Jim Hughes with Affio Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. And I have a very exciting guest today who I know is a great storyteller. His name is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark is a recently retired senior intelligence officer with 20 years, uh, 26 years experience in field operations in counterterrorism, covert action, human espionage, primarily in the Near East and South Asia. Mark's got a new book out. It's called Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons Learned from uh, the CIA. Mark, welcome to AFIO Now. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Jim. Um, Mark, uh, tell us a little bit about the book and why did you write it? Sure. So, you know, the, the book was really, it, it, was, it was kind of a cathartic experience for me because, you know, I, I retired from the CIA, I retired for some health issues that we can talk about later, but ultimately, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And, and I realized two things. One is that, you know, there's a great story to tell about CIA. It's an indispensable institution, and I don't think the American people know enough about it. So I went to, a, you know, a bunch of former directors, friends of mine, um, like Mike Morell, like George Tenet, and others, and I, and I explained to them, I think I want to write a book. I, or I think I want to talk about the CIA, you know, openly in public. And they sort of said it was a fantastic idea. So I was really encouraged by that. And then the second piece is I realized by the end of my career, I was actually a really good leader. Um, now, I wasn't always a good leader. You know, as, as a branch chief, I don't think so, you know, as, a, as, as more of a, you know, a junior officer. But by the end of my career, um, when I reached the senior intelligence service ranks, I realized I, I was a good leader. But it was because, you know, it was forged throughout you know, a lot of tough times, you know, uh, particularly in the Middle East uh, and, and running counterterrorism operations. And really, at the end of the day, I understood that I, that I was able to lead in times of crisis. And I kind of wanted to then piece it together. So I came up with, you know, nine core principles and, and, and how I built teams that would be able to, to you know, to thrive and I'd be able to lead in times of ambiguity. And that, you know, that gray area, that, that those times of crisis, that became my happy place. So it was interesting to me. So I decided to write a book about it. Um. Mark, I think it's pretty well known that you are a sufferer from Havana syndrome. To, to the degree that you're comfortable, can you tell your uh, our audience a little bit about that and what you've experienced? Sure. So, you know, the, my last job, uh, my career, I was the uh, acting chief of operations over what's called the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center. In the old days, that was, in essence, I was a, a double division chief um, uh, over overseeing clandestine operations from everywhere from, you know, Dublin to the farthest time zones of, of Russia. And I made a regular trip uh, uh, to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in early December 2017. Uh, first of all, to see the ambassador there, John Huntsman, who was a great statesman. He had been ambassador in Beijing and been a governor before and now is ambassador in Moscow. Um, and also I wanted to I, I, I was compelled to meet with our counterparts, you know, through, even throughout the Cold War, CIA and, and, the S, uh, and the KGB would meet. So now we were meeting with our Russian intelligence counterparts. Um, and then something really terrible happened, you know, you know, midway through the trip where I woke up in the middle of the night with a stunning case of vertigo, of tinnitus ringing in my ears. I was falling over. I mean, something really awful had happened. Look, I, you know, I'd been in Afghanistan uh, for quite some time in Iraq. I'd been shot at numerous times, risked my life. But this was the most terrifying moment of my life. And this then started a really awful health journey that continues to this day where I've really suffered from these symptoms. And in essence, I've spoken out a lot about it. It took me a long time for the agency to agree to give me health care. Um, that was a painful period. But under Director Bill Burns now, um, you know, I think the agency is, is is pursuing the right path. I've gotten the health care that I need and, frankly, that I deserved after serving for so long in the agency. Uh, but it's still a journey for me. You know, I still have symptoms. And, uh, you know, to this day, almost four years later, I still have a headache 24-7. Wow. Is there anything that you can say about 
what is known publicly about what causes this and who might be responsible? So, you know, conventional wisdom has this, you know, this started in, in 2016 in Cuba. But in reality, if you look back, you know, at, at many of our officers who've served at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, there's been unexplained health incidents. There's There's been rare cancers suffered by numerous former, you know, chiefs of station, for example, lots of intelligence officers, lots of State Department officers there. So the Russians have always been bombarding the U.S. Embassy there with microwave weapons, microwave, uh, you know, or technology designed, in essence, to collect signals, intelligence systems. So then, you know, it comes to 2016 in, in Cuba, where numerous diplomats and intelligence officers are really afflicted um, by some of these same symptoms that I had with vertigo and tinnitus and headaches, really getting uh, people were incapacitated. They had to retire. It, it, it happened again at the U.S. consulate in China. And then starting in 2019, which, you know, to this day is, is occurring, as you've seen with recent events with a member of Director Burns staff even just being afflicted by this in a recent trip only several weeks ago in, in New Delhi, that these attacks are occurring. So, you know, it, this is serious. An adversary is doing this. Who it is? I mean, I think the Russians are certainly the leading culprit. They've had this technology before. Um, I think you, if, you, if you want to look at it in a geo, you know, strategic sense, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has, you know, is, is acting as the leader of a, of a rogue state often, whether it's, you know, uh, the Syrian Air Force, uh, whether it's the Russian Air Force bombing Syrian hospitals, whether it's, you know, election interference all over the planet or uh, and, and trying to kill opposition figures, both, you know, on his home turf in Russia or all over Europe. You know, I think, you know, Russian uh, uh, President Putin and the Russian intelligence services are certainly capable of this behavior. But ultimately, Director Burns has put together a task force. and We're going to find out what happened. But the bottom line is this is happening worldwide. There's hundreds of cases. Again, in the last several weeks, numerous cases around the globe. There was a mass casualty event at the U.S. Embassy in, in Austria. And as I'm getting treated at Walter Reed now, you know, the, the bodies are starting to pile up. I'm there with a lot of, you know, uh, former colleagues. I'm retired now. They're still in. So this is a really serious issue that, that I think Burns and I hope he's taken seriously. I've talked to him many times. I believe he is. But it's akin to to a, an acts of war against Americans. I think, uh, you know, there's nothing more paramount than us to find out what's happening and certainly to stop it. Well, God bless. We wish you and all others afflicted with this uh, the very best. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Mark, you've got a lot of um, harder experience in combat zones like Iraq and Afghanistan. And I understand that you have um, uh, lost colleagues uh, due to uh, the conflicts. Um, are you comfortable telling us a little bit about that? Sure. And, and you know, this is this is the hardest part of the job. You know, as I, as I look back on my time at CIA, and one of, the, one of the reasons I also wanted to write the book is that this is not a book where I'm sitting there, you know, thumping my chest. This is I always joke with my friends who are, you know, from you know, our Navy, you know, either current or former Navy SEALs, that when you go through buds training, you know, you get a book deal. This is not like that. My book is about failing, is overcoming failure, it's about adversity and how that builds character in officers. And and I think that, you know, at CIA, we've had our share of adversity. You know, when you walk in, as you know, Jim, on the right side, uh, as you walk into the, the old headquarters building, there's the memorial wall with 133 stars. And and unfortunately, uh, you know, as you as you do this job for for quite some time, you know a lot of those the, the people on that wall who, who who was on there. So in my case, you know, I, I dealt with some some particular uh, tragic events um, in the events of, uh, at Coast um, on December 30th, 2009. A, a suicide bomber, a double agent, detonated himself and killed um, uh, many of our, our fellow CIA officers. One of those officers, um, uh, Darren Labonte, worked for me, you know, personally. And I was involved in that operation. That, that to me, was one of the worst experiences of my life. Not only that I lost a, a colleague and a friend, but also the sense of, of responsibility that I felt that we had failed. I mean, I, I clearly remember 
you know, several years later when I received, you know, promotion to senior intelligence service, I, I really felt that I didn't deserve it um, because of what had happened there. So that was a, a particularly tragic, tragic moment that I think is going to haunt a lot of us uh, uh, for some time. Everyone in that operation, you know, uh, we're doing things in a, you know, in a, in, you know, in a well-meaning fashion. Obviously, mistakes were made, you know, and some of those mistakes were, were catastrophic. Um, uh, and, and, you know, on a personal note, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, standing up. I was the deputy chief of the station, as you know, I can't talk about where, uh, but I was in the Middle East. I stood up in front of about 400 people and I told uh, I told them that only moments before Darren had been killed. And I will never forget, you know, people dropping on the floor and, you know, the sounds of, of, of officers just crying and wailing. Um, CIA, as you know, you know, particularly on the operations side, you know, it, it's, this is not a nine to five job. You know, you know, we we live together, we work together, you socialize together, you're overseas in some tough environments. And and so the, the sense of loss was really, really profound. And, and I'll never forget that moment. Um, and, you know, it, this is just things that that, you know, it's part of a career. And, and when people ask me, you know, what it was like, you know, working in the CIA and they want to hear stories of, you know, heroism and, you know, James Bourne, uh, uh, Jason Bourne type type operations. You know, that's not what I think of. I think of the losses much more. And, and I'll tell you, my son to this day, Darren, Darren's parents gave uh, gave us uh, uh, Darren's Little League baseball card. You know, Darren was uh, a great uh, high school baseball player, was going to get drafted, chose to go to the Army instead. My son plays college baseball now. He's a catcher. Darren was a catcher. My son carries Darren's baseball card in his wallet to this day to every game. And so that's how much, you know, that the Labonte family means to us and how much that operation really affected both me and my family. Mark, you spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Um, as we all know, uh, Afghanistan has been uh, much in the news lately. Looking at CIA as a career service and kind of a long-term career service, how is that going to affect us? Not only conducting espionage inside Afghanistan, but just conducting uh, espionage worldwide. But Jim, what a great question, because, you know, and, and I've spoken a lot about this in the media and, you know, I'm not here to criticize the policy decision to withdraw, you know, or or the, or even the, the machinations of the withdrawal, which certainly, to my view, didn't go very well. But here's where it actually I think it affects CIA officers the most, particularly um, operations officers or, or paramilitary officers, because our job is to deal with foreigners. So whether we're working with indigenous units or just an agent. You know, there's a relationship that we build with these individuals. And, and I talk about it, it's, it's almost a romance or a marriage. Um, you know, so so when someone agrees to work with the United States government as, a, as an intelligence officer, that person's life is in my hands. Um, but what makes Afghanistan even even more different is that these Afghan allies that that we worked with are indigenous units. You know, I was a base chief in eastern Afghanistan I mean, I, uh, between 2011 and 2012 in Paktika province. There's 20 Americans and 800 indigenous officers. They saved our lives every day. So it was it was a reciprocal, really, arrangement. So they're working for us, sure, to battle al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But at the same time, as we go out on patrol, as we come under enemy fire, as they return fire, our indigenous units are our brothers and sisters there. And you know, I, I'll never forget that. And, you know, when I was when I was a base chief there, you know, our our our, uh, our indigenous commander was killed. I remember, you know, taking his blood soaked body out of a car. He, he picked up an IED. Um, I spoke at their funerals. You know, we ate with them, we lived with them, and I wouldn't be here today without them. And so there's this just tremendous relationship we have um, with those that work with us. And so Afghanistan matters and in the way that we withdrew, because I worry that other people are going to question our commitments down the line. I'll go back even before Afghanistan to, a, you know, I, I was living up in northern Iraq with the Kurds. 
before the war, before the arrived, before the invasion in December of 2002. And I remember talking to a, a Kurdish leader and I was giving him my whole, I was a very junior officer. I was giving him my spiel on how American is going to, is going to, you know, going to, you know, bring democracy and freedom to Iraq. And he just said, stop. Now these are the Kurds remind you. And Jim, you know, the Kurds. And he said, he said, look, we've been betrayed by everybody. So, you know, this is a marriage of convenience now. And, and I, you know, and, and I never thought about that, that until much later on, um, because, you know, the Kurds understood that, but I'm afraid other groups won't, uh, because, you know, America has had uh, a less than glorious record of, of, you know, committing to certain conflicts and then leaving. I mean, I think about, you know, uh, you know, when, when we withdrew our troops from Lebanon, for example, um, after the, after the, the, the bombing of, of, you know, the, the, uh, the Marine barracks. And, it, it is important for America to keep their commitments. And I think that it, these kinds of things, the way we withdrew from Afghanistan, um, is going to make it harder for CIA officers down the line, particularly when we need the help of indigenous units in conflicts. It's something that every CIA officer knows about. They're going to have to deal with, uh, but it doesn't make life any easier. Mark, we just celebrated the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11. Right. And uh, certainly 9-11 was a watershed experience, both for the nation, but especially for CIA. While the agency had always been involved in um, some level of uh, combat support, clearly we retooled and redirected after 9-11 and got much more heavily involved in combat support. How do you see that playing out now, particularly into the future? Has that cost us in terms of our uh, worldwide coverage and just regular uh, espionage? Um, do we need to retool again? What do you think is going to happen? And, and sure. And, and, you know, I, I think that's a question that that every CI director in the recent confirmation hearings, whether it was Gina Haspel and, and most recently um, uh, current director Bill Burns has addressed. And so there's no doubt that, you know, the CT fight takes it takes a great deal of two things, takes you know resources and personnel. And, you know, the, and we have a finite amount of both at, at, at CIA. Um, and so so ultimately, with the global war on terrorism, our, you know, not only did the senior leadership focus, uh, it was almost primarily, primarily focused on that, but also all of our stations and bases, you know, you know, put, you know, counterterrorism, um, what we call on the top of their operational directive for a station. And so, you know, our, our, our attention certainly shifted away from harder targets such as, you know, China and, uh, and Russia. And, and there's no doubt that was to, you know, to the expensive collection. And so we did not collect as much on those targets. And guess what? They didn't stop trying in the, in the, in the two decades. And so I think correctly, we have to shift focus now back to our targets. And, and you know, the CIA and the intelligence community is like an aircraft carrier. It takes some time, you know, to train someone on Chinese or Russian, Arabic, Farsi, Korean, hard target languages. You know, it's going to take a year or sometimes two. Uh, and then, then case officers have to become proficient, you know, as, as full performance operations officers. So making this shift is going to take some time. We're doing that. I have no doubt. I've heard it in public testimony from Director Burns, certainly from the, the current DNI of Real Haney. So it's the right thing to do. I would add one quick point on this, though, because I think all is not, not lost in this. We're not just going to shift entirely. Let me give you an example. In the war on terrorism, you know, we, the U.S. government, you know, and this is kind of a crude term, but I'll say it, we became very good at manhunting. That's fine fixing and finishing our terrorist adversaries. And we did it in concert with the Joint Special Operations Command. So usually with CTC officers along with JSOC. Now, what does that mean? How, how can that help us in the future? I wrote a piece about this uh, several months ago because I think the future of the U.S. soft special operations forces relationship can be hinged on this. So let's say you have a station in Africa. And of course, the Chinese are everywhere in Africa. Well, we want to find out what the Chinese intelligence officers there are doing. So why not take that same type of mentality to find and fix? That means doing targeting packages, you know, identifying the Chinese intelligence officers, having CIA officers and U.S. officers from, from JSOC, from the Special Operations Forces, 
who are trained on surveillance detection, counter surveillance, because we gave that training during the war on terrorism. Why not we shift that a little bit to building targeting packages on our adversaries? Now, there's going to be no fix. This is a lot different. They're going to go away. They're going to go to another, you know, the, the soft forces will will melt away and perhaps go to another uh, 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 area of operations. But we can still use that that kind of manhunting mentality in trying to find and develop pattern of life and other things that would help us for recruitment approaches and others. So I think that's the way we kind of have to think of this. Um, I've talked to a lot of my old you know, military colleagues and, and they are thinking like that. Uh, uh, but ultimately, the shift has to be made. Um, and and let me let me throw in one wrinkle. And it's a big wrinkle. Recent events in Afghanistan, you know, uh, certainly have complicated this efforts because now with the lack of a, a U.S. embassy presence and the lack of an Af- Afghan intelligence service, these were kind of cornerstones of our human collection. Um, plus, with the resurgence of Al Qaeda, we're going to still have to put resources in, in, in the CT fight in Afghanistan. I think a lot of those re- for, re- resources were expected to shift towards Asia, for example. Um, and uh, and again, we have finite resources, so it's going to make it a little tougher. Well, certainly over the last 20 years, our relationships with the U.S. military have grown very, very close. As at least some of our viewers know, our relationships with the Special Operations Forces uh, are the longest and strongest and go way, way back in time. And also, uh, we CIA um, recruit very heavily from uh, retired personnel from the Special Operations Forces. Mark, in your book, you say, I miss CIA every day. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and you said earlier that this is not a job, this is a way of life. For our viewers, and we have some number younger viewers now, talk a little bit about what that means to be a member of that family and, and what it means to leave. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some amazing, uh, forgive me, I'm going to give a couple stories here because, you know, uh, one of the principles, what I talk about leadership, you know, uh, 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 about building great leaders and how, how you lead in crisis, is I talk about building teams that have what you call family values. And that's, that's I'm going to use a corny word, but that's just a love for each other. And Jim, you know this, when you walk into a high-performing station, you knew it right away. You know, you saw that vibe. Like, you know, these these guys and gals got it. And so I'll give you a couple stories what what I think, you know, are you know are really profound for me. Um, when I was in Afghanistan, my uh, my mom, who lived in New Jersey, she passed away. And now I was on, I was six, 7,000 miles away on the border with the Pac-Afghan border, in essence, in a combat zone. And we were leaving the base you know, with a, with a, in a helicopter flight in the middle of the night. Um, you know, the base took fire all the time. And as we take off, we leave and we have to go to, we're, we're flying through a mountain pass and, and clouded in. And I'm on comms with the pilots. Now, these pilots, as you noted before, these are veterans of, of special operations units who then came to CIA afterwards, the best pilots in the world. And I'm telling them, just turn back. Like, this is crazy. Like, no one should get hurt here. And they refused. And we finally got to our next base. And what happens after that? I get off the, the helo and I say, why would you all do that? That was dangerous. And they said, Chief, we knew your mom passed away and there was no way you were not getting home. And I had tears in my eyes because, you know, that's the kind of people we worked with. Um, they knew this was important. It wasn't an operational goal. It was a personal goal. So how do I not feel an affinity for an organization that has men and women like that? Um, I'll tell you a, a, another great story. And it's, it's a personal one involving, involving George Kennan. I'm of Greek background. I was born in Greece. My dad is a true Greek. You know, he, he, he went to school here, but he's from Greece. He was a university professor in the U.S., but he never had a particularly fond view of the United uh, of, of the CIA because he was a Greek who lived through the, the junta in the 1970s where where the U.S. provided aid to a right wing Greek government. Now, he blames the CIA like a lot of Greeks do, but you can have that whole other debate. He was never thrilled with my career choice, and that's OK. But I, when I came back from Iraq, I was very fortunate to receive the Distinguished Intelligence Medal for some of my the, the, the operations that I ran there. And at the award ceremony just prior I took George Tennant aside, who's a fellow Greek, and we knew each other. And I said, look, my dad is going to be here today. Would you mind just talking to him? He doesn't have a great view of the agency. And George, as you know, is like, I got this. 
And I tried to explain, he goes, no, I, I, I got this. So I see them after the ceremony speaking and they're talking in Greek. And I'll, I'll get emotional when I, we're talking about this now. And, and then I come over, my dad has tears in his eyes. And I say, what did the director say to you? He goes, nothing, I'm not telling you. And he never spoke about it again. I talk about this in my book, by the way. My father refuses to acknowledge this whole thing happened, which is pretty funny. Um, but then I went and when I saw the director tenant, and I said, "What did you tell my dad?" And he said, "Mark, I just wanted him to let I wanted him to to, to let him know that you were a hero in Iraq." And I, I teared up again. And, and so I'm thinking back on that. So here's the director who had for for no other reason, just for the goodness of his heart, did something for me that had a profound effect on the relationship I have with my father to this day. And he always asks about George Tenet all the time now. And he says, look, I'm still not thrilled with CIA, but George Tenet was a great man. And, you know, and so that's what I talk about, you know, the, the things I miss, those personal relationships. I have friends, you know, who, who's you know, two of my friends, one, one of my friends, both of his children graduated from the Naval Academy. Both are Naval officers. He was a Naval officer. Um, he was a SEAL. His son's going into the SEAL teams. I remember when, when, they were teaching my kids when they were, they were two and three years old how to swim at a, at a, at a pool in the Middle East. I mean, those are kind of the, 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 you know, the experiences we have together. You know people for decades. You know their families. You live together in some strange places. And that's what I miss the most um, because it really is a family. And, and as a family, we fight like hell. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jim, you remember this. It can be a you know, backstabbing, cutthroat place. But you mess with us from the outside, you know, that's when everyone kind of comes together. And so... Those are the things I uh, I miss the most about about the HC, the camaraderie, the sense of mission, because there is no other mission in the U.S. government. You know, you know, you are at the tip of the spear doing really important things. And, and what I loved, it's especially at the end of my career, when when you are too senior, as you know, um, to really have a, as much effect on operations, you know, mentoring young officers is so important. And I would tell them as they walked in the door, I love meeting, you know, when I was the deputy ops chief for the, for the, for the Near East Division and then later on as the. Uh, the uh, uh, chief operations for one to move to the mission centers to Europe and Eurasia Mission Center. I meet every officer who came in, and I tell them, "Look, you know, you you know, this this is an honor to be here. It's a privilege, and and you know, I know that every day, you know, you're not going to walk in kind of running in with a smile on your face. But I'll tell you, over 26 years, I love coming into work every day because I knew that we had really had a you know had, had a, the possibility to have kind of profound effects on on the security of the United States and and people around the globe. And you know, I always thought it was just a, an honor to be there. Um, so, you know, that's that's certainly what I miss now. Uh, Mark, I'm very pleased to say that um, AFIO is able to address more and more younger audiences, both high school and college students, especially through some of these um, newer technical means. Anything you'd like to leave um, with uh, students who are aspiring to a career in intelligence, particularly the CIA? Oh, I love that question. And people ask me that all the time. You know, I, I go and I talk to university students. I do tons of guest lectures, you know, all over the country uh, at different universities. And everyone says, what class should I take? And I say, it doesn't matter. You know, what should I study? It doesn't matter. So what do you need? Well, there's a couple of things. You need to have a thirst for adventure. You have to have a love of the world. You know, as a CIA officer, especially a good one, when you go serve at a U.S. facility overseas, you don't want to be sitting in that facility. You better be out in the street. You better love people. You better love eating funny food and have it, you know, and you're okay with, you know, you know, blackouts at night and no water and and coups and all sorts of crazy things that happened to us uh, overseas. But you have to have that that kind of sense of adventure. And then what I what I tell them too, in terms of preparation, is you gotta you gotta love languages. You have to learn a foreign language. Um, you know, it's one of those things as a CIA operations officer. So just like you know, if you're a Navy SEAL, you gotta shoot really well. If if you're gonna join the CIA and go on the operational side, you have to uh, you have to learn and and become proficient in a foreign language because that's how you get that kind of real cultural understanding. And so they asked me, you know, what should I do? Well, study Chinese, study Arabic, um, study Russians, you know, Farsi or, or Korean. I mean, hard target languages, because 
if you have that language capability as you're applying to the CIA um, on the website now, as you know, that's the only way to do it. Uh, your name's going to be put on the top of the pile. There's no doubt. We need those those individuals. We need Chinese speakers. We need Russian speakers. And so, um, you know, don't worry about what you're studying. Uh, you know, if you have a degree in accounting, but you have a four level in Chinese, you're going to get a really hard look. And so, you know, that's that's uh, you know, that's my advice to folks. And of course, again, to have that kind of love of other cultures, this thirst for knowledge, this this idea of adventure. Um, not for everybody, but it's a uh, it was a, it was a hell of a ride. And Jim, as you know. You know, you, you look back at all those experiences overseas, and that's just just unforgettable. Well, he's one of our very best, and I don't think anybody could have said it better. Um, the name of the book is Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Mark, I want to thank you. This has been a terrific session. Thanks, Jim. It's great to see you.